0: We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.
2: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you think that the Civil War doesn't still have the power to raise people's emotions, then you're probably not listening to this program. But if you want proof of that, just try mentioning black Confederates. Today's neo-Confederate apologists have created imaginary armies of tens of thousands of African American Southerners bravely fighting for a society founded on a belief in their inferiority. Yet anecdotal evidence of individual men of color taking part in combat for the South keeps popping up. And what about those wartime accounts by abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, who insisted that the South was arming its slaves? Well, now there's a groundbreaking new book that replaces some of the heat around this issue with the bright light of a new interpretation. It's called The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity for Emancipation. Join us for a talk with the author, Dr. Glenn David Brasher, today on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio.
0: Wanna know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network?
1: The World is Talking, the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
2: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building here in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University. Not speaking for the university or the Brewster Building or any of its departments. But, representing only myself, as I know our guest today will represent only himself. Legal matters out of the way. It's good to be back on the air. Missed last week's show. Had hoped to go to the Civil War Historians meeting, but still Gimpy from a soccer injury suffered earlier this spring uh, in the tryout for the Euro 2012. No, that's actually on TV right now as we speak. Uh, but rather uh, playing in <clears throat> what my children refer to as the Geriatric League here in Greenville uh, as an over-45 player. So I was still limping around, didn't make that trip, but uh, but back here and doing the show. Uh, did travel a little bit recently, went to Raleigh, North Carolina, and spoke to the roundtable there, had a very pleasant evening discussing. Uh, General Buell's campaign in the West in 1862, his failure to take Chattanooga, which actually ties a little bit with our our discussion later today uh, on the peninsula campaign and the necessity for emancipation. Uh, But mostly it's uh, summertime. This is the last show of the academic year. We're going to take the usual summer hiatus after this. I will be Uh, focusing on the fun things that we get to do here. The most exciting project this year, and everyone's on the edge of their seats here at East Carolina University, is the necessity of removing personal data from everyone's personnel files. Uh, Somebody left a bad piece of paper in somebody's personnel file somewhere in the university, and now we are all having to go through years and years of old files to make sure all the social security numbers and other incriminating evidence are removed. It's uh, it's a large project, but it's very archival in a way. And as a historian, seeing how things were done bureaucratically 10 or 20 years ago is somewhat enlightening. The progress, for example, from the old style paper uh, personnel action forms to the new EPATH electronic personnel action form, which is done purely on screen and then must be printed out and put in the file. So instead of one form, you have to do electronically and then create a paper copy. It's almost... I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up if you were trying to create a satire on a a large bureaucratic institution, but the paper electronic files are as bulky as the old paper ones. But uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. Today we're here to talk about history If you are enjoying the sound of my voice so much that you want to hear more of it, I was just interviewed this week by Public Radio East here in eastern North Carolina on the subject of the War of 1812. We have War of 1812 experts in our department. Uh, Dr. Wade Dudley, for example, has written a fair amount about it. But none of them happen to be around, and following the journalist rule that a professor of history knows everything about all past eras, I was called in to talk about the War of 1812. I was unable to bring Lincoln into it in any meaningful way, unfortunately, but did the best I could. Well, as I said, this is the last show for the 2011-2012 uh, year. Uh, everybody have a good summer. We'll be back in the fall. We'll have people like Christian McWhirter talking about Civil War music. We'll have Bobby Horton playing hopefully some Civil War music. Uh, John Michael Priest on the Battle of Antietam. and many others uh, that we'll have ready for you. So look forward to talking to you again the last week in August or first week in September, whenever we get ourselves rolling again. In the meantime, uh, keep an eye on the single best site on the entire Internet, uh, www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney runs that, as ever. Keeps you up to date on what's going on. And you can contribute to the upkeep of that website and the upkeep of my personal habits with a donation to uh, the show through Civil War Talk Radio, uh, through, uh, what is it, CW, let's get it right, Civil War TR at AOL.com is the PayPal address, and there's a button there on the impedimentsofwar.org site. Even if you don't have a PayPal account, we'll find a way to get your money from you. Well, enough of the chatter there. That brings us uh, through the, uh, the technicalities to the topic of today's show, the which is a new book, uh, The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation. The subtitle is African Americans and the Fight for Freedom. And the author is Glenn David Brasher. Uh, Dr. Brasher, are you there? Yes, yeah, thank you very much. Well, uh, Dr. Brasher, you and I have not uh, met anywhere, but I gather you're at the Civil War Institute this weekend?
3: Yeah, uh, I teach at the University of Alabama in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but I'm up at the Gettysburg uh, College Civil War Institute uh, this weekend to uh, do a lecture, uh, basically on my book, and also to uh, participate in a panel discussion about emancipation and they graciously uh, connected me up with this 1977 phone <laughs> so that I could uh, get on and talk to you. So I'm actually in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania.
2: Wow. Well, if, if you're working with the staff there with Tina Grimm, for example, she knows how to do everything and is, is very good. Um, the, uh, the the I hope to get up there. Uh, I'm not there this year, obviously, as we talk right now. But uh, have you been to CWI before?
3: No, this is my first year. Uh, invited to come up. Um, In fact, this is the first time that I've been on the Gettysburg campus. I mean, I've been to the battlefield, uh, Mm -hmm. of course, many times, but this is the first time I've actually been uh, on the campus, so I'm pretty excited about it.
2: Uh, it, It's a wonderful experience. I'm I'm curious. uh, We'll have to talk some other time after you've been through this, but the Institute has been there for pretty much since the war ended, I think. It seems like it's been there a long time. Uh, But Gabor Borat, who ran it uh, for all of those years, recently retired, and Peter Carmichael runs it now. Right. And I was just speaking uh, to uh, a roundtable in Michigan, and uh, over dinner, some of the folks there said they were old uh, FOG, friends of Gabor. And since Peter has taken over the CWI, he's... Put his own stamp on it, created some new ideas, run it in new directions, and since since you've not been there before, that what's different, I guess, won't be immediately apparent. Be apparent, uh-huh. but some of the old guard are uh, well. I mean, any change is, is, is tough for some people to take, and uh, and there's been some change. So you've landed in the middle of uh, an interesting time at C W I, but I'm sure it will.
3: I assume. Better. Correct me if I'm wrong, but. So-called old guard was more interested in strategy and tactics, and Pete's trying to integrate more uh, different types of interpretation. Correct me if I'm wrong.
2: Well, I wouldn't say that's so much it, honestly. I, th- I think the old guard are more more aware than, than we might give them credit for. That they were not strictly battlefield junkies, so to speak. Right. right. Uh, what I think they they like is the, and, and many of them are listening and so I have to watch what I say, too. Uh, nothing negative, but, but they like the way things were. They like the social element. They liked uh, the way it was scheduled. Just changing it from uh, midweek to a weekend makes it more accessible to people like you and me with, with day jobs who have right. to get there. Right. But it's not as convenient if you're a retiree, necessarily, and a lot of the, the old guard fit that category. Uh, so it's more of a scheduling. It's scheduling okay. and just sort of, hey, don't, you people young, are always never, just naturally resistant to change <laughs> bingo I right. think that's what it is and, right. and I think they'll come to appreciate it over time but having people like you there is going to go a long way toward uh, convincing them that, that Pete knows what he's doing and is is going to make this a, a big success um, now do, do you go by Glenn or David or Glenn David by the Glenn, way
3: Glenn's fine I uh, oh. use Glenn David for my books uh, because I've always kind of liked my middle name, uh, so it's a shout out to my mom for <laughs> giving Excellent. me a, a good middle name. So I use that for the books, but uh, but Glenstone.
2: Uh, well, Glenn, and call me Jerry if I know if my mother uses my middle name. Then usually it was it was either to distinguish me from my father had the same first name or because I was in trouble. Yeah, well, Jerry? that's, uh, that's uh, probably
3: yeah. the case with everybody. But yeah, my mom would when I was in trouble shout <laughs> Glen Davis. <as> well, <laughs> you know, there's trouble. That's uh,
2: right. But. Uh, now you say you're at alabama uh what tell us a little bit about your your background, how you got into uh the study of the civil war
3: uh well, I'm from birmingham uh alabama a suburb called Homewood, and uh went to uh university of alabama birmingham u a b uh got my undergraduate degree in um history, and didn't really know what i wanted to do with it uh until one day. I was watching a professor just have a class completely riveted, um, you know, discussing. I think it was the Vietnam War, and the light bulb just went on, and I decided that uh, I was going to, you know, teach. And if I was going to teach, there was no way I was going to teach high school, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I uh, stuck through graduate school and and got the PhD. But the way I was actually brought to to civil war uh, was too too pop cultural. Um, uh, events. One was the miniseries um, back in the, the 80s, uh, Blue and the Gray, uh, which not not the North and South one, the one with Patrick Swayze and the, they had him running around shirtless half the time. But uh, the the Blue and the Gray, I think it has Stacy Keach in it, and there was a scene early in the series that supposedly took place on the Peninsula Campaign. And they ran at the bottom of the screen, you know, a subtitle, Peninsula Campaign, Spring, Summer, 1862. And for some reason, that caught my attention, and I wanted to know if these events that were being depicted on the TV screen were accurate. And so I went and actually pulled uh, the encyclopedia. We had those old World Book encyclopedias in the house, and looked up their, their entry on the Civil War, and I was hooked. <laughs> So really, the Peninsula Campaign was one of the first things that pulled me into an interest in the Civil War. And then, in 1989, when I was an undergraduate, the movie Glory came out. Uh, And Glory really sort of pulled me into the world of seeing the war as a struggle for freedom for African Americans. Uh, And the book that I've just written is really bringing together those two strands that were things that inspired me uh, you know, towards Civil War history to begin with. So in many ways, I feel like that I was almost sort of destined to write this book, if that makes sense.
2: Well, I, I think it really does. I think a lot of us uh, uh, to, to stick it out to get the doctoral degree, you really have to feel a calling because it, it's not a, an easy route and there's not necessarily a pot of gold at the end. Well, but that's true. <laughs> uh, but, but you have to keep working toward it. And I was, and I was
3: always passionate about the the project, you know, I saw others around me sort of get frustrated with what they were working on and get tired of it, and that just never happened for me. I uh, You know, enjoyed it, uh, the the topic, enjoyed the research, enjoyed the writing, and you know, just became even more energized at the end. Um, you know, and was ready to to get this thing out and let see people let people see what I've done. So it was well, a very enjoyable process.
2: Well, that's certainly good to hear. I, I hope a lot of people do read this book. It really is thought-provoking and does, I, I think, shine a new light on this this whole topic. The, uh, you also uh, worked on the peninsula at, at the battlefields, is that right? That's
3: correct. Uh, after I, uh, To get back to my biography, I guess, uh, after I graduated from uh, UAB I, and decided that I wanted to teach, I decided that... I was wanted to get my master's degree in uh Virginia, and so I wound up moving to Richmond Virginia, and went to virginia Commonwealth uh university b c u which I joke about the fact that I used to have to explain to people what b c u was but now that they've been to the final four and they've got a uh-huh. up and coming basketball program, I no longer have to explain v c u to people uh but i uh I got my master's degree at v c u and while I was there i um uh, I got pulled into working as a seasonal park ranger at uh, Richmond National Battlefield Park uh, because of Pete Carmichael. I I went out. He was a seasonal ranger. He was in the last stages of finishing his uh, dissertation, of course, for Gary Gallagher at Penn State. And and Gallagher was at Penn State. And uh, one uh, spring afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, I went out to uh, the Gaines Mill Battlefield, which is one of the battlefield sites that Richmond takes care of, the Richmond Battlefield Park takes care of. And I showed up for a uh, two-o'clock tour, and I was the only one to show up. And yeah. so Pete sort of turned it into an informal conversation between the two of us. And, you know, after we got finished talking about the battle, uh, he started asking me, you know, you know, you seem really interested in this, and you seem to have a pretty good grasp on things. So w- what are you doing with your life? And, uh yeah, you know, I, I told him that I was getting my master's degree and that I wanted to teach and he got all excited and told me that I should do what he had done most of his graduate career and that was work as a seasonal ranger for the national park. And he actually made some calls uh and you know, got me into the to the uh Richmond National Battlefield Park and I worked for them as a seasonal for uh for eight years. Uh, I had a wonderful time, made great friends. But probably more importantly, I learned, you know, more about the Peninsula Campaign and specifically the Battle of Seven Days than I would have otherwise learned because I'm sure you know there's there's nothing like um, being on the battlefields to really understand what happened on the battlefield. Well, that's course, absolutely true. right? Yeah, and of course, you know, learning to give tours on it, you know, even more so. So it was an education in and of itself.
2: Well, that, you know, I it's a coincidence. I think I... Went to Gainesville a few years ago and had the same experience of being the only person on to right. tour, just That's walking around the out I I under, it having a great time. We had a wonderful conversation. I learned a lot uh, about it that day, but yeah, you don't get that. Uh, sometimes you have that opportunity.
3: Well, well I'll tell you, yeah, it, just to follow up on that for yeah. a quick second. Uh, when Pete was was telling me that you know I should get into the Park Service, you know, one of the first things I said was, "Oh man, I would love to work at Gettysburg. And he had worked at Gettysburg, and he said, no, 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 no. He said, yeah, at Gettysburg, if you're a seasonal ranger, you're basically going to be standing there mm-hmm. handing out maps to the, you know, the enormous crowds that come in, and that's all you're going to be doing. He said, you work at Richmond Battlefield Park, but the visitation is very low, and so you get to, you know, meet people and have these great, you know, conversations like he and I were having at that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that, that turned out to be absolutely true. Well, that is
2: the way to do it. So listeners, if you're in the Richmond area or traveling through, go go to those various uh, sites on the Richmond Battlefield. Uh, and it, it is You may well get uh, a one-on-one talk with a seasonal ranger who one day will write uh, uh, a landmark new book. Right. We're, we're oh, just to
3: pop Richmond Battlefield Park, yes. one more second. Uh, the Battlefield Park has got a lot of really exciting things going on there. I'm sure you know that they are, you know, have been acquiring more and more land, and they pretty much have the entire Malvern Hill Battlefield now and have restored it uh, pretty much to its wartime appearance. They've just gotten some more land, but they're going to have pretty much the entire Glendale Battlefield. Uh, at Gaines Mill, they've been doing a lot of uh, site uh, scenery restoration to its historic uh, appearance. So they're doing a lot of really exciting things there and have been for, for a number of years now. So, yes. People that are listening to the show, go and visit Richmond National Battlefield Park. Yeah, it is a,
2: a hidden gem for something so close to a big metropolitan area. It, it's surprising a few people visit these really interesting fields. Right. Uh, Glenn, we're going to take a short break now and come back and uh, get into what what you've the, the take you present here on the necessity for emancipation. We'll do that in just a moment. Our guest today is Glenn David Brasher. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market
1: everyone has a belief system that they stand by it's comfortable and safe if you believe that a hot stove will burn you you won't touch it sometimes beliefs like this are practical but some belief systems may be protecting you a little too much These are the ones that might be holding you back. There's a secret to changing your belief system. And by doing so, achieve goals and live a happier, better life. Start by tuning in to Subconscious Beliefs with Dr. Hein Lembrex, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Sweringen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
2: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today <coughs> Excuse me, with Glenn Brasher, author of The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation, African Americans and the Fight for Freedom. We talked in our first segment about the uh, the site of the Peninsula Campaign, especially the Richmond battlefield, is a great place to visit and see where uh, much of the Seven Days battles took place. the uh, The experience of working there as a seasonal ranger was part of what got uh, uh, Glenn it was part of what got you involved in this. And you tell a story in the book about how the the Park Service tours at uh, at the park have evolved over time, uh, certainly through the the landmark transition in the late 90s, early 2000s from who shot who to why they were there. Right. Uh, how, was that a, a big part of getting you to write about this particular topic? Uh,
3: no, not necessarily, because I had, um, I had already uh, decided on this uh, as something I was going to pursue at, for a paper uh, for a seminar class at VCU. And my uh, supervisory ranger there, a gentleman by the name of Mike Andrus, um, knew that I was researching that aspect at right about the same time that, um, you know, they were being asked to sort of broaden their interpretations. And so that's what resulted in the conversation that I discussed in the introduction of the book and uh, him asking me if I could do a tour of Malvern Hill that would, um, you know, bring in more than just who shot who where. So they kind of coincided, I guess, more than one pushed the other.
2: Well, if we look at the the Peninsula Campaign, the the idea of the necessity of emancipation being connected there, most listeners to this show, if you ask them about emancipation, what battle is most closely connected, they would say Antietam, because that's when... Lincoln issues the proclamation, waiting for a victory in the summer of 1862.
3: And of course, every textbook that anyone is going to read is going to paint it that way as well.
2: So, why, just to dive in with a broad question, why the Peninsula Campaign?
3: Well, um, it was at a point in time when the war was going fairly favorably for the North uh, in the Western Theater. Uh, General Grant obviously had taken Fort Henry and Donaldson and secured much of central Tennessee and had uh, won the big victory at Shiloh that had pushed the Confederates uh, into Mississippi. And, of course, the Union Navy had taken uh, broad stretches of the Mississippi River, including Memphis and New Orleans. And so at this point it looked like that really the only thing left to do to win the war for the North was for McClellan to capture the city of Richmond. And he seemed you know, right on the verge of doing it with his army eight miles outside of, of the city when the, the Seven Days Battles began. And it was when McClellan was defeated that the fortunes of the war uh, seemed to stunningly change in reverse direction, and it gave um, a lot of credence to uh, people who have been arguing, really since the fall of 61, that the North was never going to win this war unless they uh, freed the slaves, because the slaves were such an enormous advantage to the Confederates. Uh, and that seemed to be the case during the Peninsula Campaign. And that by taking that advantage away from the South and then adding it to the northern side of the ledger, um, it would give the North the strength to be able to to, to get back on the right track, if you will. So it, the, the stunning results of the Peninsula Campaign really sort of woke a lot of people up to the fact that it could be a severe blow to the Confederacy to, the problem of their slaves, and I argue that that included Abraham Lincoln, who, at the end of the Peninsula Campaign, came to to decide that it indeed was a military necessity to free the slaves. And so it was only a couple of weeks after the Peninsula Campaign, uh, which ended on July 1st at Malvern Hill, uh, that um, Lincoln presented on July 22nd his preliminary version of the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet. Uh, and there, there's no coincidence
2: there. The two were definitely tied together. Let me ask a question that's a little outside your book, but it, it's something that I've actually been working on lately and, and curious about, which is the Western Theater in the summer of 1862. Uh, as you say, the Peninsula Campaign nearly succeeds in, in the Union capturing Richmond. Uh, Collins troops move up the Virginia Peninsula from Fort Monroe right to the gates of Richmond. Uh, and then are driven back. And in, in, by July 1, that campaign is over. At the same time in, in the West in the aftermath of Shiloh, through all of June and well into July, uh, Don Carlos Buell is driving eastward toward Chattanooga, right. which if he successfully were to have occupied, would have freed, would have caused Knoxville to be cut off and, and have to surrender and would have freed all of Eastern Tennessee for the north. Would have opened the way toward Atlanta. Would have been really not not as big as Richmond, certainly not as symbolic, but a huge victory. Wow. So if, if 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 Buell had taken Chattanooga, or even more so, if, if uh, uh, McClellan had taken Richmond, then this military necessity argument that emancipation is needed would would have. Would have fallen by the wayside. I, right, I would exactly. certainly agree with you for, for Richmond. Do you think it, what, what if Buell had taken Chattanooga at that time?
3: Um, well, that's a good point, and, I, and, I, and I'm assuming that you're asking me this question because, uh, you know, it, does it all have to be about the Eastern Theater? <laughs> uh, that's, that's
2: part, I'm a Westerner in, in my own interest. Yeah, right. But uh, and,
3: and of course, I knew that I was, you know, going to get that question. Um, uh, I think that if, if Buell is successful, but McClellan is not, um, you still could make the, uh, the, you know, the radicals and uh, the abolitionists could still make the argument that, uh, that it's a military necessity to free the slaves because they could point to, as they had been doing, all the things that African Americans had done that had stalled uh, McClellan, you know, the, the Norse, uh main army and the one that most people were paying attention to and prevented them from, from taking the city of Richmond. So the argument would have continued. Now, whether it would have been persuasive or not is another question. Uh, but, I think the argument would have would have continued even if if, uh, if Buell had, had had been successful, but McClellan had not now, if they had both been successful then i don 't think there 's any question that the military necessity argument loses all of its power complete power so uh, i 'm still going to lean on the, the peninsula campaign being one of the, you know the, the, the most important events that, that leads to the the credence of the military necessity argument
2: and and i think that 's a valid argument i, I wouldn't disagree. I think, I mean, literally the the paper I've been delivering lately and working on as a a book chapter is about the Buell's campaign for Chattanooga, and I somewhat addressed this aspect of it uh, before I read your book, and reading the book really helped me see that these are parts of the same puzzle, and I agree that Richmond was more significant, but the the irony that both Buell and McClellan, who are these traditional uh, conservative Democratic leaders, not interested in abolishing slavery, uh, that their twin failures, or or you know, their twin failures, really push emancipation forward.
3: Right. Well, I, so, I, like I said, I, I think there's definitely an argument to be made there, but um, again, I'm going to still hang back on that if. if that it requires McClellan more than uh, to, McClellan to fail more than Buell to fail. For, yeah, I
2: I, no, I don't think there's any question about right. that. I, I
3: think, but yeah, the two, but the two at the same time, you're right. I mean that 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 makes it even more uh, apparent that, uh, that freeing the slaves as a military necessity is um, a valid argument.
2: Well, let's talk about. You mentioned several times the the things that the slaves do during the campaign. Um, what, what do the slaves do during the campaign uh, for, for the South that, that helps people in the North start to uh, think differently about emancipation?
3: Well, one of the big reasons why Macron's campaign failed uh, is because he had been slowed so much. And of course, you know, he, he's prone to slowness, but he was even, uh, slowed down even more by the fact that uh, the peninsula had extensive fortifications, uh, you know, all the way down to the Lower Peninsula that had been built by largely-impressed slave labor. And as the army of the Potomac was, was stalled at Yorktown, the, uh, the newspapers in the north were, and I read a lot of them, were very clearly pointing to the fact that these fortifications are in our way, and these fortifications are largely dug by impressed slave labor, uh, shouldn't there be something we can do about this? Uh, look, look what advantage they are to the South. It's keeping their troops fresh. Our soldiers are, are doing all the labor themselves on their lines. It's it's wearing them out. And so at the end of the, the Peninsula Campaign, this is pointed to a lot by uh, many Northerners as being something that had played a factor in McClellan's failure. And then uh, to get to the topic that is the most controversial part of my book and that you mentioned at the start of the program, there were many uh, reports uh, during the pencil campaign that African Americans were being seen uh, within the Confederate lines acting as, in some way, soldiers inside the the Confederate lines, Uh, largely on picket duty, uh, people noticed this, uh, artillery gunners and even sharpshooters. And these stories were getting exaggerated to a degree by Union soldiers because they sort of conflated it with other so-called rebel atrocities, uh, like the mines that were placed in the path at Yorktown. And so the you know the rumor mill blew it up among the, uh, the army ranks. Quite a number of African American troops in, in the southern advance, and then two days later, I would find a soldier who wasn't even near this this battle, um, talking about the fact that you know I heard that there were a whole regiment of blacks in this attack, right? So, you know, it would get blown up. But the point is, is that newspapers would report this, and Northerners were uh, learning apparently that there were blacks that were actually fighting in combat for the South. And, uh, not surprisingly, it outraged them. And it got picked up by radical Republicans uh, who were trying to push for the Second Confiscation Act at this point in the spring of 1862. And I found that it became a fairly prominent part of their uh, congressional speeches in support of the Second Confiscation Act, that not only were African Americans helping the South because they were building entrenchments, but that they were actually you know, in arms against us. And so it make makes sense that we subtract that strength from the Confederacy before they use even more of them in this capacity and add that to our side, because certainly they argued these African Americans would rather be fighting on the side of liberty. So if we offered them their freedom,
2: this really highlights the complexity of the question, because uh, as most listeners to this show will already know that the North did not enter the war with emancipation as a widely accepted war aim. There were some who favored it, but most Northerners didn't. Uh, So so this really is an issue, should the North fight for emancipation, and it's a minority view that they should at the start of the war. So until this process takes place, that people's minds are changed, you're not going to have an Emancipation Proclamation. Right. And,
3: and I think that also includes Lincoln. Yes. Uh, the, uh, you know, goes to that trajectory as well. And,
2: and what, what I find fascinating about the way you describe this is that it's not... It, it is the way uh, perceptions of race cut in multiple directions at the same time, that the argument that there are lots of African Americans fighting for the south you would think an abolitionist would want to hide that news because right. it right. would seem to say oh well they must like slavery then but in fact they were the ones who trumpeted it loudly in, in, in your book uh, because they're trying to, to, for the arguments you already raised that they right. want the and, news you know, to and, and there's an
3: irony in that there's a, there's a profound irony to me because as you as you know uh, on the internet today you can find you know all kinds of people Claiming that thousands of African Americans loyally served the Confederacy uh, out of Confederate nationalism, and that this and you know, somehow indicates that the Civil War was not over slavery, and so they champion and they, they champion these these accounts and they exaggerate them and they use them as propaganda to try to you know to, to say that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. And of course, the irony is is that they were first exaggerated and used as propaganda by abolitionists who were trying to let, you know, turn the war into a war for emancipation. There's something very pro- profoundly ironic about that to me.
2: There really is. And, and the, 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 the simple notion that, that too many people have today uh, that the war was a simple black-white, good-bad, north-south, free-slave sort of you know, polar struggle uh, is not the case at all. In many cases, the arguments in favor of using uh, the African American former slaves as union laborers or union soldiers are themselves profoundly racist. That it's better to oh, use yeah. their lives than white lives.
3: Yeah, most definitely, and, and that they're uh, that they're more accustomed to physical labor. Uh, and they can deal with the heat and the humidity in the South better than our white right soldiers can and so they should be used you know for, for manual labor I mean obviously that's very racistly driven um, but nevertheless the end product is pushing for the emancipation of slaves
2: it is really a remarkable set of circumstances we're going to take another short break and talk more about this process of how war and Emancipation are so closely intertwined on the peninsula Uh, It's part of a fascinating book called the peninsula campaign and the necessity of emancipation by Glenn David Brasher. Uh, He is here. I'm here. I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War talk radio.
1: Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
0: Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network?
1: You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
2: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Glenn Brasher, author of The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation, African Americans and the Fight for Freedom. We talked in the last segment about how the use of black laborers on the peninsula by the Confederates helped spark the argument in the North that uh, the North should do the same thing, should take advantage of the slaves' labor uh, by giving them freedom, emancipating them and letting them dig for the North and eventually perhaps fight for the North. But it took a while for that to to come about. Um, One of the things that I thought was particularly interesting about your account was the the essence of contingency um, and and more historians uh, in every generation some historians are more interested than others Uh, but the idea that things happen sometimes because of very small fortuitous events Uh, in this case the when when the union army first shows up on the peninsula at fort monroe uh, it's the first Union incursion into slave territory on any kind of large scale, and the local slaves for the first time are next to a Union army. They could escape, but they don't know how they'll be greeted. Uh, and, and you make the point that this is really a significant moment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm glad you brought this up, because this is an aspect of my book that that I, I hope that more people ask me about, because I, I'm, I'm aware that... A lot of people don't to want to talk about black Confederates, and what I have to say about black Confederates. <laughs> uh, but one of the aspects that um, that I try to argue is that the relationship between Union soldiers and the, these runaway slaves is important for encouraging emancipation. Uh, of course, you know the Union Army is is very prominently talked about in the process of emancipation. You know, if, if the Union Army is not there, then emancipation doesn't take place. <laughs> um, and of course you know no one has pushed this any harder lately than Gary Gallagher in his Union War book um, but one aspect of that that I think is missing is the importance, uh, like I said for the relationship between these soldiers and these, these slaves that are coming into the line now that's not to say that there were not a lot of Union soldiers who uh, not only opposed emancipation but had very strong racist sentiments that often reflected itself in very cruel treatment uh, of these African-Americans when they came into the lines. Although I think some of that was probably more prevalent in the Western theater than in the Eastern theater because you had so many New England soldiers in the Army of the Potomac. But still it happened. And so I'm not trying to discount that at all. But what I'm saying is is that if that was all uh, that was happening when you, when uh, runaway slaves came into the lines, then that would have acted as a means of discouraging slaves from coming to the the Union lines because they had been told by their masters um, drilled into their heads by their masters that Yankees were these evil, almost demonic-like people who were intent on subjugating the South and that part of that subjugation was to actually take the slaves for themselves and ship the slaves off to harder labor in the Caribbean, Cuba to be precise. And so you know, slaves at the start of the war they don't they've heard their masters say this they hear that the you know the Lincoln administration is disavowing a war for emancipation at the start of the war so there there's an uncertainty there and so when they come into union lines if they were you know predominantly treated with this this cruelty then I think that there's a possibility that the, you know, that, that that initial trickle of slaves coming to lines could have been shut off or at least severely curtailed. But the fact is is that what I found on the peninsula is that from the beginning, uh, of course, you know, famously Benjamin Butler, the first one, but from the beginning, the Army of the Potomac, uh, you know, accepted them in the explained to them what the war was doing to slavery, found that a lot of them already understood that, uh, and that just encouraged even more slaves to come. So I think the one element that's that sometimes missing in our discussion about the Union Army's importance in the process of emancipation is their willingness uh, to accept a lot of the runaways into the lines uh, and treat them sometimes with, with dignity. Although, again, at the same time, there was also racist treatment. But if it's only one uh, way, then it possibly prevents more from coming.
2: And that is... Uh I thought it was ironic, again, that the slaveholders trying to discourage their s- slaves from escaping and going to the Yankees mm. uh, could hardly tell them, hey, they'll set you free. They could only say, they'll send you to even worse slavery. Right, right.
3: right. Well, you know, it's, it's, it, the slaveholders really don't know what to tell their slaves, because, you know, uh, around the election of, of 1860, uh, of course, Southerners are saying all these things about Abraham Lincoln being an abolitionist, and that he you know he, he's for black and white equality, and you know just this uh, uh, virulent stuff to try to to, to make sure that uh, the fellow white Southerners understood the danger of the election of Abraham Lincoln. Well, their slaves heard all that, right? Their slaves heard those conversations. Uh, and so their slaves already sort of had on, on the one hand, the preconception that the North was fighting for, uh, you know, liberation of slaves. But then the masters start changing their tune and the masters start telling them, you know, that, no, no, the, the anchors are actually coming down here to take you off to a fate worse than, than the slavery that you have now and that they're, you know, they're evil beasts. So the, the slaves have got got all kinds of things swirling in their heads and, you know, while some of them completely discounted what their masters were saying and, say, you know, thought that, their masters were, were completely trying to deceive them and that they understood that, that the Yankees were probably their friends from the beginning, I found repeatedly uh, slaves coming into the lines and expressing, you know, doubt over just exactly what would happen. Uh, so again, I, I think that points to the importance of, of the Union soldiers actually treating them with to at least some degree uh, acceptance into the lines.
2: But it, it also points out something I think your book does well, which is give the slaves a degree of agency they don't always have. Right. Um, you know, Barbara Fields has argued the slaves freed themselves with no help from the Union Army, or Lincoln, uh, in so many words, and, and I think that may by making a pro, you know, making too a, far.
3: And of course, her argument is that they, they made a, a sort of a nuisance of themselves by coming to, to the lines in such large such numbers, and it forced the federal government into coming up with a consistent policy. But, again, what I'm arguing is is that at the very beginning of the war, slaves don't necessarily have any reason to fully believe that the Yankees are going to set them free. Uh, and so they kind of have to test the waters. And if they get one particular reaction, then that, you know, that might get shut off. So. And, and
2: I think that that presents the slaves as rational beings making the same kind of calculation in an uncertain environment Absolutely. that anybody else would make right. and and they uh and it turns out as, as you show that the north isn't going to send them to Cuba right. or do anything <laughs> drastic and they right. they start to volunteer another thing I found uh, uh you know, sort of satisfyingly uh, ironic i guess was the the, the use of the slaves to build the fortifications was necessary because uh... whereas the Yankee soldiers complained about the fatigue duty and died of disease while digging trenches southern white soldiers would not dig the trenches Right,
3: right. well it's definitely a problem that, that, that General Lee had uh, at the start of the war uh... and you know he gets the reputation of king of the spades well you know they're derisively calling him that Um, not only because it seems sort of cowardly to be digging these ditches, but that he's asking white men to do labor that has historically in the South been considered to be, um, you know, something that only black men do. Uh, And so, you know, I found soldiers, southern soldiers, very resistant to, to digging because, you know, this is not labor that's fit for a white man to have to do. And Lee had to overcome that. And, of course, you know, obviously by the end of the war, southern soldiers have now uh, you know, you, all you have to do is go to, to Petersburg uh, or you know other battlefields in, in 1864 and 1865 to see how they are now very adept at doing that kind of labor. But early in the war, they they resisted it and uh, you know they, they used to a large amount impressed labor to dig these fortifications. And as you said, it really annoyed.
2: I think Joe Gladard's book is really good at at showing uh, Lee's difficulty getting his men to to take labor seriously and to to do that. And it is not till the the later years that they're they're willing to dig even to save their own lives. Well, and another thing you you point out is that the slaves themselves, uh, obviously they're not volunteers, they're, they're enslaved. But their owners are none too keen about volunteering them to serve the Confederacy.
3: Yeah, well that was something um that Magruder, John Magruder, uh who was the, the general on the lower peninsula preparing those defenses in the fall of, of sixty one and then through the spring of sixty two that he repeatedly had to deal with and that was that masters were, were very reluctant to send their slaves off to work on the fortifications. And he had to he had to continue to remind them that uh, you know, look if if you don't do this, the Yankees are gonna come take your farms and they're gonna take your slaves so you know you, you better you better give them up. But they complained to uh, to the to the I mean to the uh, to the Confederate White House. They complained to the Virginia government uh, and did everything they could to try to stop Magruder from impressing their slaves. Um, and of course, there's been historians recently who've argued that this indicated that that uh, white Southerners were more interested in their property rights than they were you know Confederate nationalism. Which I I don't I don't buy that argument. But ultimately the slaves did become an effective uh, force at uh, holding back the Union Army uh, and you know certainly Southerners made other sacrifices for Confederate nationalism. Now,
2: they were surprised too the, the slave owners that you portray when their slaves do run away.
3: Yeah, right. Well, you know, that comes from uh, the, the years of Self delusion about the fact that, that they believe that they, that slavery was actually something that was good for the slaves, we're taking care of these people who can't take care of themselves, and so they love us the way the children would love, uh, you know, a benevolent father. And then, you know, the moment of truth occurs, uh, uh, and the, the, as John Basedy said many years ago, the, what he called the moment of truth, when the slaves started to go to the Yankees, and there were slaveholders who they. they It was just mind-boggling that what they had always thought was an affectionate relationship between them and their slaves uh, was, in fact, one in which their slaves had been longing all this time for freedom, and they sort of saw the truth for the first time. I I found a woman in Williamsburg, Virginia, by the name of uh, Cynthia Coleman, uh, that had some of the the best material that I found and that I've seen from a southerner being shocked. By the fact that her her slaves ran away, and uh, I highlight that I'm sure you recall in the the chapter on when the Union Army was marching through Williamsburg, and it's just it's it's um, it's rich and very satisfying stuff to see these southern slaveholders, you know, just boggle that 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 their slaves actually don't, don't love them.
2: It's it's a preview of what will happen on all over the South in Reconstruction uh, right. when when the slaves leave the plantations everywhere. But you really see it clearly here, and I found it sort of interesting that in spite of it happening so clearly uh, here at uh, the peninsula, that the rest of the South, white South, does not get the message, and assumes, okay. well, you know, our slaves still love us. Oh well,
3: yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It was uh, you know. In, in fact, there, I had one slaveholder who said. But, you know, the slaves were in here talking about the Union Army's coming, and they were, they were excited about it. But I think that's just the slaves that we just recently bought. Because the ones that have been with us for a while, they'll be loyal. And, of course, they all run off.
2: <laughs> they all go off. Exactly. Now, you, we touched briefly on the Second Confiscation Act, and that's another whole subtext in this book, which is the the political battle going on in Washington throughout this time uh, since Lincoln is not immediately emancipating slaves, radical Republicans in Congress are trying to get legislation through And I, I thought it was interesting how you show that the newspapers, even those who, who are initially strongly anti-abolitionist evolved their views over the course of this campaign
3: right well and again it's uh, it's because of you know all this uh, the stuff that they're reporting about how the fortifications and, you know, the stuff about uh, supposedly black Confederates. Uh, and then it's also an emotional reaction to a large degree, I think, to the failure uh, of McClellan's campaign when it when they had so much hope. Uh, and, you know, they're eight miles outside of Richmond and this thing could be over and then then it doesn't work out that way. I, I think that in July of 62, the whole country kind of had a very emotional reaction. And, and and I say this because a lot of times when we talk about emancipation, it's all about Lincoln. What was Lincoln thinking? Yes. How was Lincoln trying to, you know, uh, deal with the different uh, uh, political realities that he was having to face? And it's it's, it's often. Lincoln.
2: It's just a fascinating story that in when you read military history, I mean, since the 1960s, people have been talking about the new military history, that we have to integrate military events with social and political stories. It can't just be about generals and moving blocks on the map. And uh, some people have made steps in that direction and done different things. But this book is one that, that truly intertwines the military with the political story that doesn't present emancipation in a vacuum or the campaign in a vacuum and shows how they relate to each other which it, it, reading it made me think of how, how things are in in one's own life in contemporary society you don't only read the Afghanistan story or only read the uh, stock market story or only read the, the football scores uh, they're all happening at the same time they all affect each other and they all
3: affect the way we think about things
2: it, it, it's, it is how we think about things, and of course, this really helps show how the public in the North and the South, uh, both the free and the enslaved uh, civilians, thought about what was going on on the peninsula, and the soldiers too, for that matter. Uh, really a fascinating book. Um, Glenn, we're just about out of time, so I... Yeah, unfortunately, good, good conversation. Well, I, I enjoyed it myself. I thank you for being on the show. Say hi to Pete Carmichael for me, please, at the the Civil War Institute. And, I definitely will. And uh, everyone else there. And uh, hopefully you and I will cross paths at a conference somewhere. And good luck with the book.
3: All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm very humbled and honored that you asked me to be on the program.
2: Well, it was a great pleasure talking with you and uh, a really wonderful book. Listeners, you'll want to get hold of a copy of The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation, African Americans and the Fight for Freedom. And everyone have a good summer. And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network.